I've recently been spending some time thinking and reading about the Civil War. Well, not so much the war per se, but the reason for it. Sequestered during COVID, we've been reintroduced to this topic in a big way, if not in a particularly thoughtful way. So I've been reading and contemplating, considering especially the role of the church. Fact is, at least half the church in America was all in on slavery, using the Bible as their defender of rights on the matter. Among the things I've been reading is this book by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove entitled Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. He wrote it a couple of years ago, which seems just in time for this precise moment, advancing on an important agenda for the church today. You may want to pick up a copy for yourself as a kind of soul-searching homework. Early on, he tells of visiting an Episcopal church near Durham, North Carolina. Here's how he describes his visit. North Carolina's elite donated the land and built this chapel in 1824. Their children intermarried, and by the end of the Civil War, a member of the church, Paul Cameron, was the wealthiest man in North Carolina. He owned most of the land that is now Durham County and nearly a thousand enslaved human beings. He had a thousand slaves. St. Matthew's priests showed a small group of us the balcony, which was added to the church mid-19th century to segregate its enslaved members from the landed gentry below. The whole plantation economy rested on every person knowing the difference between slave and free. We were standing at the front of the chapel, looking up at the balcony in the back, when a fellow visitor turned to the communion rail behind us and asked, were masters and slaves segregated when they came forward for communion? Oh no, the priest said, matter-of-factly. He recalled an annual report from one of his predecessors who'd gone on to serve as bishop of North Carolina in the mid-19th century. The bishop described the scene of master and slave kneeling together at the altar, receiving body and blood of Christ. It had seemed to him a notable image of the reconciliation that Jesus Christ makes possible. But is there any record of an experience like that making someone question slavery itself? The young white woman who asked the question seemed troubled. The priest paused for a long time to consider her question. We do know that one freedman left this parish and became an abolitionist in Oberlin, Ohio. I like to think it was because of something he'd seen and heard in this church. The priest could see how desperate this woman was for a word of assurance, for some sign that the gospel has power, not simply to remind us of what should be, but to change who we are. Now, if he'd stopped there, Part of me would have been happy. One abolitionist in a thousand is at least a glimmer of hope, even if he did have to flee this space to live out what he heard in the scriptures. But looking at our little group of visitors, all pale-skinned, the priest knew he had to tell another story, one about someone far more like most of us. Thomas Ruffin donated the land where St. Matthew still sits today. He was an upstanding white citizen of North Carolina in the 19th century and a lifelong member of the parish where the fellowship hall still bears his name. 
Ruffin was also a justice on North Carolina's Supreme Court. When a white man was convicted of assault against a slave woman he hired, Ruffin's court voted to overturn the white man's conviction. Ruffin wrote the opinion himself. The priest telling this had read Ruffin's words with a pastor's eye. He could see the man who is still buried in St. Matthew's graveyard, wrestling in every sentence with the reality he experienced at the communion rail each Sunday. Ruffin went to great lengths to acknowledge the humanity of the slave, but legal precedent was clear. The power of the master must be absolute, the white churchman wrote, to render the submission of the slave perfect. Reading Ruffin's opinion, the priest said, was like watching a man tear himself in two. It's not a big dramatic story, is it? That last sentence is what captures my attention, though. Simply put, white Christian and slavery were peas in a pod for at least half the American population. And when push came to shove, slavery won out every time, leading to the bloodiest Holocaust in our nation's history that consumed the lives of more than 700,000 soldiers, not to mention the lost lives of untold African Americans even to the present moment. Good, upstanding Christian folk like Ruffin. In her spiritual memoir, Amazing Grace, Kathleen Norris writes, I am not a good person or notably evil on the human continuum, but one who struggles with ordinary yet dangerous temptations to anger and revenge, to pride and greed, the fool's gold of vainglory, and the improper manipulation of other people to further my own ends. You name it, it's all there. I don't know much about how to deal with my own evil, but I've learned enough to recognize that sometimes all I can do is pray. Honestly, this captures my personal experience too, and the fundamental human predicament of opposing values competing for our allegiance, our propensity to run from difficult moral choices, our lack of interest in interrogating our own values and motives when confronted with our truth. It's difficult to stand apart for righteous ends. Fortunately, some of us, some of the time, manage to do that. I suppose we could say that when we're at our best at Christ Church, we try to help people stand apart together. One day, Jesus told his friends that God's kingdom is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. That night, while his hired men were asleep, his enemy sowed thistles all through the wheat and slipped away before dawn. When the first green shoots appeared and the grain began to form, the thistles showed up too. While I don't know about a specific enemy who snuck into my life to sow bad seed, I do know something about wheat and weeds growing up side by side, sometimes seemingly indistinguishable from each other. I've recognized this in myself, I have seen it in others, and I have seen it in the church and in the wider culture, a ubiquitous human condition. The literal weeds of Jesus' parable were likely one of the curses of Palestinian farming called bearded darnel. 
Only after the heads of grain appeared would their difference be noticed. But by then the roots had intertwined so that to pull the one was to pull the other. Jesus' point has nuance. Good and evil exist side by side. Sometimes, for the life of us, we can't see the difference. In the referendums of 1933, 95% of the German population, overwhelmingly Christian, voted approval of Adolf Hitler. As you've recently been reminded, the author of our beloved civil gospel who wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, was a slaveholder. Paul told his friends in Rome, All around us we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God arousing us within. Maybe in some ways we have advanced in our understanding of our common humanity. Yet evil's debris still litters our world. No doubt about that. While certain evil cannot be tolerated once confronted, Jesus' little story adds a cautionary note. The farmer must be careful not to pluck the weeds too soon, for in pulling the weeds, the wheat too might be destroyed. The story of another man from America's turbulent history might help us understand. For all of our vaunted religious freedom, the early centuries of our land were actually years of great religious intolerance. In New England, 15 offenses called for the death penalty, including idolatry and witchcraft and blasphemy, desecration of the Sabbath. That's death penalty stuff. These laws had been passed to protect and enforce the integrity of the religion of the majority. Many religious groups were severely persecuted. Long before our Constitution was written, Roger Williams understood that true religious conviction could never be coerced. In 1636, he was banished from Massachusetts for his opposition to these rigid laws and for his outspoken advocacy of the rights of Native Americans, who he ultimately joined at what became the heart of Rhode Island. Williams' term for religious persecution was rape of the soul. And one of the biblical texts he used to advance his case was none other than the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He reasoned that we must find a way to live and let live, for religion could not be authentic without liberty, and those who enforce their own beliefs upon another might just be plain wrong. If we agreed that good and evil grow together inside all of us, then we would also agree that from time to time each one of us will be wrong, sometimes very wrong, even deadly wrong. It is a benevolent God who doesn't tear the bad willy-nilly out of us. Who among us could survive? The parable doesn't let us off the hook, though. Jesus is clear. The reckoning with evil does come. But in the meantime, we're given ample opportunity to grow up into those persons whose fruits are love and justice. As followers after Jesus' way in the world, one of our occupations is to help garden each other's lives. And the gardening instructions we're given tell us to do everything in our power to promote healthy growth of the good. So friends, I'm hoping we can agree on a few things.
First, let's agree that we'll be committed to the truth, to seek it, to own up to it, especially the truth about ourselves, to be willing to interrogate our lives and our values in light of the gospel. For Christians, the gospel is our measure. Let's agree to hold that quest for the truth with open-handed humility. And let's agree that our world, our nation, our city, our church, and each one of us have good and bad growing side by side, and that sometimes we see this, other times we're completely blind, willingly deceived, or willful deniers of the first order. But then let's also agree that having acknowledged these first things, we'll commit to promoting a gracious and generous spirit among us where we seek to nurture the very best in each other, focused on everything that promotes just and loving outcomes, seeking the same for our neighbors near and far. As you heard earlier, the psalmist gave us an awesome prayer for this very purpose. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting.